are starting a series this week on um, justice and racism. So um, as we've spoken about um, weekly since George Floyd's murder, we've spoken um, about the fact that as a church, as a community, that we are part of the problem, that we need to open our eyes, have our hearts open to see where we might be at fault. And part of that is engaging and listening and making sure that we're doing what Jesus already always did when he came up against things that weren't of the kingdom. Um, his, his gut moved, he had compassion for things that were wrong and he felt the pain that people were feeling, the suffering that people were going through. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was moved to see a solution, a kingdom solution, and to seek healing, and to seek reconciliation and change, and see the kingdom come. And so this week, Dom is going to be speaking, um, uh, doing our first talk from this series, and then next week, Nita's going to speak, and then in week three, we have Ben Lindsay coming in, guest speaker, coming in, and um, we've been talking about this for a while, but just to encourage you again, um, it's worth reading Ben Lindsay's book. There'll be a link on the chat, and it's also on the bio uh, below the video. Um, his book is absolutely brilliant, so do try and read that before Ben comes to speak. But in the meantime, um, Aimeed is going to uh, give us our reading now from Nehemiah, and then Don is going to speak. The reading is taken from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Sisa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant they had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed to God before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eye open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as my dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand, Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in rendering your name. Give our servant success today by granting him favour in the peace of this in the presence of this man. I was cut over to the king. Amen. Good morning, St. Peter's. I hope you all keep him well. Lockdown is apparently easing, which sounds like good news. 
I'm not 100% sure it is in many senses, but it is good news economically and mentally and emotionally if your lockdown situation has not been a good experience. But we are seeing more people out and about and in turn, more shops are open. There is less queuing outside of supermarkets, more shelves stocked with toilet roll and those canned tomatoes, but also Perspex screens at the checkout, that is new. Schools are opening, uh, barbers, hairdressers, importantly pubs are on their way and so on. It feels just maybe this is the beginning of a return to normal or at least a return to a new normal. A few weeks ago, I read this in the FT, nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next, and we can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And this morning, with the help of Nehemiah and chapter one, I'd like to look at how we can imagine and fight for, for something new in our glorious part of South East London, how we can connect faith with life, how we can stay focused on moving towards the shalom of God's new creation, while also concentrating on faithfully doing lots of small things right over a period of many years together. But quickly, let's catch up with this story in Nehemiah. At the time, the latest world power was Persia and uh, God's people, Israel, have returned to the land of Israel from the captivity of Babylon, the book of Nehemiah centers around the memoirs and activities of our man Nehemiah. He was an exiled Israelite who was also the cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. It was a distinguished position within the palace of the king. Nehemiah's job was to taste the king's wine and his food, making sure it was not poisoned. It seems like a straightforward gig, it seems like a cushy setup, but some people he knows, including his brother Hanani, came to visit where he was and Nehemiah asks after home, only to find out that things were not good. Over the past month, racism has moved to centre stage here and around the world, as you'll know, prompted by the killing of George Floyd in the US and by the wave of protests, demonstrations and rioting that has followed. These protests are acknowledging a fundamental truth that the killing of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor and the many, many black people before them murdered by the police in the US has to be understood as a symptom of something bigger, a symptom of systemic racism. All this has prompted challenging conversations everywhere about the nature of racism and what we can all do to help eliminate it. And this moment isn't just about police violence, nor is it just limited to America. Here in the UK, black men are stopped and searched by the police at nine times the rate of white men. Black people make up 3% of the population of England and Wales, but they account for 12% of the prison population. Two weeks ago, a section of a government commissioned report on COVID-19's disproportionate impact on black, Asian and minority ethnic people concluded that, and I quote, it is clear the pandemic exposed the and exacerbated long-standing inequalities affecting BAME communities in the UK. The main report found that people from black ethnic groups were most likely to be diagnosed with COVID-19 and those from BAME groups 
overall had the highest death rates. Those of Bangladeshi origin faced the highest risk of dying, twice that of white Britons, while people with Chinese, Indian, Pakistani, other Asian, Caribbean, and other black backgrounds faced an extra risk ranging between 10% and 50%. In a recent article, historian and broadcaster David Olasuga said, for two centuries, we have deployed American racism as a distraction. It's as if we find it easier to recognize American forms of racism than we do our own homegrown varieties. Convenient, as pointing fingers is always more comforting than looking in the mirror. And if I may, I'd like to move us into a less comfortable position this morning by holding up a mirror to us and our local community and our presence here in Broccoli and as St. Peter's. During the past month or so, we've been in conversation with many of the black, Asian and ethnic minority communities within the church. And we've listened as they've shared stories, honestly, of their experiences, both in the church and in the wider community. Two weeks ago, we heard Tamara, Alan and Chris share their thoughts and personal experiences as people, as people of colour within the workplace, in the local community, in college and in the church family, and also how they found the past few weeks. And I think I speak for all of us when I say how greatly appreciated it is to be able to hear from you. I'm sorry it's come to this and I can't begin to imagine how tired you, you must feel. But here's the thing, appreciation on our part isn't enough. We have appreciation days for all sorts, but that's exactly what they are, single days in the calendar. We need to move from an appreciation for one another to love. Paul Tillich says, in order to know what is just in a person-to-person -person encounter, love listens. It is its first task to listen. No human relation, especially no intimate one, is possible without mutual listening. And that's where we start. For many, that's it for now. Listening, learning to listen to those whose experiences are different from our own. But what comes after listening? Because here's the problem. We live in a time where the brokenness of the world is coming at us through the media, through one another's social media accounts, like it never has done in history. We have explicit access to the suffering of the world without even leaving the house. We can even curate suffering based on how much we can tolerate. Most of us experience it and then we just push it off. We say to ourselves, I just can't take that on right now. It's just too much for me. There's a well-known book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. This book was written in 1985 and in it, the author, Neil Postman, details the corrosive effects at the time of television on our politics and public discourse back then. But also what he did, it was kind of prophetic, was he anticipated back in 1985 so much about what has become our current public discourse. And the key takeaway for me uh, was a phrase that describes now how we have completely distorted the way that we see the world. And it's the phrase, now this. The point is that we're now wired to be able to move from one piece of information that could be profoundly serious to a completely different piece of information about something else. And now, instead of it just being on the TV, which is what he was writing about at the time, we're now able to do this just by scrolling on our phones. We can be faced with something, some important news, a, a clip of something hard and challenging. And then with one simple scroll, it's gone. 
And now this, a viral clip of a dog doing something amusing or another cute photo of our kids. So over the past month, we've been seeing a lot of grief and anger through images and words. But before we can sit in that and begin to face that burden, whether it's our grief or someone else's grieving, we scroll onto something lighter in nature. But this is a tool used to move us away from that first experience and our exposure to something more serious. So any compassion that began to grow in us is squandered by a viral video of someone's pet or a kid doing something funny. Nehemiah, when told about the state of his people who were in great trouble and the walls of the city of Jerusalem had been pulled down and gates burned, he didn't keep scrolling. He didn't say, I can't handle this right now. Give me some light relief. No. What did he do? Well, passage says, he sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Church, we are in a moment where many of our family are hurting. And to be honest, they've been hurting. Now is not the time for us to look away. Now is not the time for us to change the channel. We must resist those viral clips and learn to sit in the burden. We should weep and be saying, this is not what God had in mind for his creation. We should care about what he cares about. In the New Testament, often you'd read the words, Jesus looked on them, had compassion for them, and healed them. Where it says that he had compassion for them, that's not the same meaning as what we give it nowadays that, for that word compassion. What it means in the scriptures is a pain in his gut. Jesus saw their pain. He saw their hurt and was moved so much by it that it caused a physical pain in his gut. And from that place, what happens? He heals them. Church, we cannot look away. St. Paul in Galatians 6 verse 2 said, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christian, what God has called you and me to as the people of God is a type of compassion and empathy that moves us in our gut. So as the community of faith, we model to the world outside of us what it looks like to be the people of God and to walk in the type of flourishing God would have us walk in. But how do we sit in these challenges? How do we grow in this kind of compassion? Because the truth is we can't just flick a switch to feel what God feels ahead of our own desires. How do we do it? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, because in the next verses, Nehemiah models it. Nehemiah doesn't look away. He begins to pray. And this right here is a great model for prayer generally, but particularly, I think, in this current moment in which we live, it is quite profound. He says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and, keeps his, and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. So first what Nehemiah does is he recognises who God is and what God has done in the past for his people. This prayer, the beginning of this prayer, centres the restoration of the broken community on the faithfulness of God to his people and to his city. He makes it a kingdom issue. One theologian says of this prayer, Nehemiah looked for a solution to the crisis, not through personal industry or technical prowess, 
but in the presence of an engaged and faithful God. And what Nehemiah says next goes against everything our Western culture of individualism tells us how we are to live and to think. It says this, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Nehemiah repents over the decline of his people and the city of Jerusalem. He places himself and his family within the framework of corporate responsibility. Even though Nehemiah wasn't born when, when things went wrong for the people, he still acknowledges a transgenerational responsibility. If this is leaving you uncomfortable, this is not the time to back away. Do not change the channel. Do not keep scrolling. Do not go and put the lunch on. Please, let's lean into it. Let's lean into that uncomfortable feeling. White friends and family, it doesn't come close to the bare minimum of what we should be doing right now. To even have the choice to back away is a scandal. Our black friends and family, they don't have that choice. So let's lean in together. It's good for us. The church has played a role in many tragic and harmful events throughout history. There's our failure to properly steward God's creation. There's the ongoing oppression of women and the sinful justification of sexism in the church, the marginalization and abuse of the LGBTQ community, our brazen ableism and ignorance of those with disabilities, additional needs or mental health issues, and many others. But in this current moment, and it is genuinely shameful that we've not moved quicker and more effectively on it, is the historical sin of racism. And for this, the church has needed to corporately confess and repent. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, has made a good start and has set a great example of what that looks like. He said recently in a statement, I'm struck by the events of the last few days, again and again and again. I've been listening to those who have been talking about it from within their own experience of injustice as people of colour in this country. It's horrifying, and yet I'm aware too that the church has its own failings. And I come back to the fact that in the New Testament, Jesus says, be angry about injustice, repent of injustice. That means go the other way, take action against injustice. But I feel within me again today, that great call of Jesus that we are as a church to be those who set our own house in order and who acknowledge our own historical errors and failings. As a person, I acknowledge that I am from privilege and a great place of power as a white person in this country. And now we need to take action. That was all what Justin Welby said. And Nehemiah also confesses his own sin and wrongdoing. Maybe it's time to assess our own experiences, grievances, mistakes and ignorance, our own unconscious bias and repent of them. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Greek word for repent is a word called metanoia. It doesn't mean to feel sorry or simply apologize, but as Peter Price says, it is to open a new worldview, put an end to business as usual. Repentance means owning sin as an offense to God, but also moving forward in a new way of obedience, turning in a new and different direction. For us, how that looks is taking the pain, brokenness and racial oppression in our community as our responsibility. 
the history of Broccoli and Lewisham Borough needs to be our common history as a church and therefore a call to metanoia. We live near to Fordham Park and in the park is a big stone which many of you will know has the names of the 14 young black people killed in the New Cross fire in 1981. 13 of them died in the blaze, many more were injured and one young man committed suicide later because of the trauma of the fire. To this day, justice has not come for the families of those kids. Bosch investigations have led the police no closer to the cause of the fire and it's tragic. We know this wouldn't be the case if those were white kids. Six weeks after the fire, a local group that was growing with each gathering organised a march from Fordham Park into Hyde Park. A local paper from back then, the South East London uh, Mercury, carried reports of the demonstration. There was an opinion piece in that paper entitled Day of Dignity, and it pointed out the significance of the march. And it says, I quote, the biggest gathering of black people this country has ever seen. It said, they came to tell the rest of the country how they felt, not just about the terrible loss of life they had suffered, but about the discrimination they suffer. The fruitless search jobless youngsters face, the problems so many children face in schools. Judging from the national newspaper coverage of the march, they haven't managed to bring that protest home, with the press concentrating on the tiny minority of hotheads who broke away to fight police and rob shops and passers-by. But the vast majority of people demonstrated their anger with dignity, their frustration noisily but peacefully, their sense of tragedy with emotion. That was written on 5th of March 1981, nearly 40 years ago. Not much has changed. And that's New Cross. That's here. That's where we live. That's the history here. Every single black person I know around here knows that story. We should all know that story. Christian, if we're going to truly make this home and help, help it flourish, this history needs to become our history. The black experience uh, here and the pain that the result of the history needs to become our pain. Where repentance needs to happen, we repent. Where forgiveness needs to happen, we need to forgive. Alice and I and the boys spend quite a bit of time in that park and Alice always makes a point of taking the boys over and reading the names of those kids who died to our sons, making the history of our area our common history and asking ourselves how we've been complicit in the hurt and pain and then repenting where we need to. We can all read books, all the books that we can take on the subject of racism. We can educate ourselves up to our eyeballs on it. Uh, we can then tell our mates to read this article and watch that video. But honestly, what is the point of any of it unless we are then, like Jesus was, moved with compassion to begin to, help to heal the hurt like he did? Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu of South Africa reminded us in a book that he wrote more than 20 years ago that from his own experience there really is no future without reconciliation, confession and forgiveness. If you read anything that civil rights activist and author John Perkins says, his message is that you, if you take the gospel seriously, it means the church must be serious about justice and reconciliation. What does that look like as St. Peter's? Well, reconciliation is something that has ultimately been achieved in Christ. 
as we read in the well-known and recently well-quoted verse from Galatians 3, 28, where again Paul says, there is neither Jew uh, nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And Paul again in Ephesians 2, he says, his purpose was to create in himself, that's Jesus he's talking about, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. But this is always an ongoing process, not a one-time thing. Living in the narrative of Christ, we need to learn not only how to improve our communication skills and our listening skills between one another, but how to actually practice reconciliation. And at its root are repentance and forgiveness. There is so much on this in the scripture that we just can't ignore it. Again, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth talks about how they needed to break down the dominant culture there, the ethnic and gender boundaries that were dragging it down and preventing it from flourishing. We have often gone after this idea of oneness together in Christ, which is a good thing, but for Paul then and for us now, a new vision of humanity actually allows people to celebrate their differences and empower one another in love. The kingdom of God doesn't erase diversity, but it celebrates it. We don't express this newness as a community through tolerance and fake unity, which does simply just result in erasing each person's identity. What we actually need to do is we express our newness through relationships remade by the Holy Spirit's multicultural witness, voice and common life. But more on that next week. Ultimately, this is a kingdom issue. If we do all of this, I am confident that we are living out the gospel. As the Archbishop of Canterbury said, it's what Jesus spoke about and modelled so perfectly during his time on earth. We shouldn't want to waste time on the abstracts, but live in a way that reaches into our community with the appropriate love and care that it requires. We may genuinely want to seek to reach the least, the last and the lost. It's a great line through the gospel, but are we emotionally connected to one another? Are we first experiencing our church community's pain? And are we personally investing ourselves in its healing? And that is what Nehemiah did when he left his job working for the Persian king, stood at the king's side as his cupbearer. He left to go and be with and serve alongside and to identify with the plight of his people. And the story goes on. This king he works for sees Nehemiah's response to the bad news and helps him in the rebuilding of the city walls. And then, as HGM Williamson points out, Nehemiah does not simply announce what he, he intends doing, nor force his way on the audience. Rather, he invited the people's participation in the fulfilment of God's call. And they were successful in bringing physical rebirth to the city of Jerusalem in building the walls, mirroring the spiritual renewal Ezra was also bringing to the people of Israel. For the first time in hundreds of years, the people of Israel could dwell safely 
in their own land in the presence of God. Community storytelling led to action so that a new story could be written together. And we have begun that process of listening to the stories of our church and are starting to act on it. And long may that continue over many years together. And Nehemiah was a foreshadow of Jesus who did exactly the same thing when he gave up his own high position next to the Father in heaven in order to identify with the plight of his people on earth and live a life that was characterized by prayerful dependence on God in his ministry of restoration of all creation. Now we, God's community, by faith, Christians, the church, have an opportunity to reimagine a new world. And we can walk through the portal between the old world and the next lightly with little luggage, ready to fight for it. Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. But first, we need to do as Nehemiah did, recognize the hurt and brokenness around us, check our hearts and confess and repent. And that's exactly what we're gonna do right now. So let's take a moment of quiet. Let's wait on God. Let's see what he's saying to us through what you've just heard. But also let's see what he's saying to our hearts now.